Let me start with a few questions. So here's one. What is one thing that a surgeon cannot have if he's working on your body? Twitchy hands, right? Shaky hands, okay? If he didn't kill it at operation as a seven-year-old, he cannot be a surgeon. What's one thing that a Food Network star cannot have? Big, ugly, warty hands. Have you ever noticed that about watching a food show? What do you always see? You see their hands, right? All right, on the treadmill at the Y, I love Grace, so I watch the Food Network just to get tips on food stuff. What is one thing that a power forward cannot have? Little small hands, right? A power forward needs to be able to grab rebounds in traffic. He needs Mike Gary hands. You know those things that just go on forever. All right, what is one thing that a spiritual leader cannot have? Cannot have. It's graspy hands. It's hands that love to take and move in this direction. There's three texts in your Bible that talk about qualifications for spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter. In all three of those texts, one of the things that gets mentioned, boom, 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 is this right here. An elder, a deacon, a spiritual leader cannot be eager for dishonorable gain. Cannot be eager for dishonorable gain. What is that? That's when someone is fast quick to take for themselves, to, to steer toward themselves what becomes available to them but does not belong to them. What has now become available to them but doesn't really belong to them, they find a way to do this, to take advantage of their calling for personal gain. In Scripture, the Spirit is clear that this cannot be a part of the makeup of one who would lead. Why is this such a big deal that it gets repeated over and over and over again? Okay, here's why. Because the doctrine of the church or a high view of spirituality and spiritual leadership is always being hijacked by the spiritual professionals for their personal benefit. This is always happening, and this is why Scripture beats that drum over and over again. Okay, let's talk about this. It is good for people like us to have a very high view of Jesus' church, to love being here every Sunday of our lives, to love giving so that this institution can exist, to love making disciples of the people beside us, to be excited about the mission of the church to love the pulpit, to love the table, to love to sing. We should love Jesus' church. This is because when Jesus saves you and me, he doesn't just do that, us on an island alone. It's always into a community, into a family, into a body, into the household of faith. I got a few hours the other day with a, a guy who lives in Melrose, and I've been trying to connect with him. We went to a Celtics game together, so we had a long time to talk. I believe that this guy has been born again by the grace of Jesus. He told me that he heard about this story where Peter is throwing his nets and he's not catching anything. 
But then when he has Jesus and obedience to Jesus, his, his boat gets filled up. And he said, that was my life. I was on my own without Jesus, but I've now come to Jesus. And I have these new affections for Christ that I've never had before. And I'm, I'm loving and patient with my wife. And I read the Bible in the morning, and then God speaks to me during the day and reminds me of those words. I'm washing the dishes, and I have joy in my heart. And I'm going, wow, this guy's been changed on the inside. But in three hours, he never once mentioned to me a desire to be a part of the life and the mission of a church. He never talked about loving and discipling others. It's just all about him. He never talked about submission to other pastoral authorities in his life. It was just him and Jesus. And I'm okay with that. I can work with that. We can go somewhere in this relationship. Often we're converted to Jesus, and then as a next step we go, oh, and we're converted to the life of the church. But that's very hard for an American like you. Very, very difficult. If Americans are anything... We are lone wolves, right? Especially anybody under 40 in here. You're the generation that had your iPad and your headphones and just leave me alone. You have been trained since kindergarten that you and your autonomous self is at the top of the universe. You believe in the Holy Trinity, right? What is it? It's me, myself, and I. I believe in God. I believe God's triune. Me, myself, and I. We do not have on our radar, just look at this room right now, our culture does not have on its radar a love for the doctrine of the church. I hope that you do. I hope that somebody showing up with us would see something they've never seen before, affections for Jesus' people. Okay, but there is a dark side to all of that, to the doctrine of the church. This is it, that the doctrine of the church inevitably gets hijacked by some of those who find themselves in authority for their own personal gain. I'm talking about clergy, elders, deacons, pastors. I'm also talking about worship leaders, youth ministers, Sunday school teachers, if you understand the tone of Scripture, I'm also talking about fathers and mothers, all of them twist the authority that they've been given for that dishonorable gain. Think about it. When a bunch of people commit to Jesus' church and the church as an institution begins to grow and it grows in money, and it grows in bodies, and it grows in influence, and it grows in momentum. And now there is some glory to be grasped at. When God blesses the work of the church, what do some of those who find themselves with access to some of that glory, some of that money, some of those bodies, some of those perks, what do they do all the time? Take some from me. If you read your Bible devotionally, you just come across this over and over again. It's epidemic. These are words from Ezekiel. He was a prophet 2,600 years ago. 
Not much has changed. He spent some time around the shepherds of Israel. He was at the water cooler at the church offices. What did Ezekiel see? Look at this. Oh, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? But you eat the fat, and you clothe yourselves with the best wool, the wool, and you slaughter the fat ones, but you won't feed the sheep. Did everybody feel this? You've been given a charge, a stewardship, a calling. Shepherd my people. Give your life so that they may be strong and mature and holy. This is your calling. Present them to me healthy and mature and thriving. But instead, what did these shepherds do? They used their ministry for their personal gain. So translate this way. What does eat the fat mean in our day? You drive the Mercedes. You live in the penthouse. Easily the nicest house in the church is yours. You dine at the Capitol Grill. You eat the fat. Translate, you clothe yourselves with the wool. What's that? You divert these resources that were meant for the thriving of the flock And somehow they find their way onto your feet and into your closet and into your bank account. How did that happen? Translate, you slaughter the fat ones. What's that? You move toward the wealthiest and the prettiest and the most accomplished people in the life of the church. Because if you can get good with them, your church is going to meet budget which is important for the game that you have going on. And you may get invited to the ski lodge in Vermont or the boat down at the Cape or the nice parties. This is what the shepherds of Israel did, perverting their ministry this way for personal gain. That was true in Ezekiel's day. It was true in Jesus' day. This is terrifying. Does everyone know who was most instrumental toward and most thrilled with the murder of Jesus Christ. Who was it? Who comes to mind first? Maybe it's the Roman soldiers with the spear and the nails, okay? Maybe it's the political leaders, Pilate. Is it Judas? Does he come in first? He was the most instrumental. It was the pastor's. It was the clergy association. It was the shepherds of Israel. They despised Jesus. Why? Because he knew their game. And he had come to be a good shepherd and to rescue people from their hands. This is why at the very end of his life he told that parable of the tenant farmers, the tenants in the vineyard. This is what he said. Looking right at these men, looking them right in the eye in Jerusalem. I'll tell you a story. A man planted a vineyard. He let it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
so that they would give him the fruit of his vineyard. You feel that? Every spiritual authority ever, every elder, deacon, pastor, mother, father, this is your job description right down here. This is it. In making disciples of those under your care, the ones that have been entrusted to you, it's supposed to bear much fruit, and that fruit is God's. That's the job description. It's His vineyard. It's His fruit. The glory and the fame and the benefits and the money and the influence and the buildings and the endowments and anything that comes from doing the work of God, anything that attends faithful gospel ministry, it's His. It's His fruit. Give Him His fruit. We must give God the fruit of our work. We have to. But that's not what they do. That's not how these spiritual leaders in Jesus' day were doing. So He says they would beat on the servants who came looking for the fruit. And then finally, the king sent his son. And what did they say to themselves when they saw the son coming? It's heartbreaking. Here's what they said. Oh, 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 look, look. This is the heir. Here he comes. Let us kill him so that the whole inheritance might be ours. Does everybody feel that? In other words, ultimately... Let's not just hold back the fruit from this one season. Let's keep it all. Let's keep it all. That is an eagerness for dishonorable gain. We could multiply examples until midnight, right? We could seriously do that one at a time, come up and talk about that. The false apostles in the apostolic age that Paul beats on in Galatians and Corinthians and other letters. How about the medieval church at the time of the Reformation? Have you read about that? Oh, who was the richest, most luxurious living people in the Middle Ages? Who was it? It was the priests. It was the church. Isn't that convenient? We could talk about the lazy, shoddy, entitled pastors that Richard Baxter bombs on in his Reformed Pastor book. He would just go through England and he would see them everywhere, taking for themselves. You have lived through this in this city, right? In greater Boston, with the whole pedophile priest scandal. It's the same thing. You guys, once you will take the glory from God, you will help yourself to the money. You will help yourself to the bodies of those under your care. If you will take the glory, your hands will just continue to do this. And if you think that's just Roman Catholicism, you're wrong. This is alive in evangelical church in America. And if you think it's just out here, there's a reason I'm preaching with some urgency today. It's because it is standing before you. It is in our hearts. Isn't it so interesting how we always claim that we are doing work for God, we're doing work for God, but somehow... We keep getting richer. We keep getting richer. Think of all the times that the Lord has blessed the work 
of your hands, and you have watched them begin to say, let's get some of that glory here. Let's get some of those perks over here. Let's, let's take some of those benefits for myself. When there is ever glory on the table, glory to be had, here's what we do. All right, so what do we do if this is true? If, if that statement that I had up here is true, that the doctrine of the church inevitably is hijacked by those who can, who can hijack it for their personal benefit. What do we do with this? What do we do? Well, here's the number one solution in greater Boston in 2015. Does anyone know what our number one solution is? Throw out the church. Just get rid of the doctrine of the church. Here's our solution. Leave the doctrine of the church behind completely. That's the problem. Is it only me who have kind of had conversation with people about the life of our church and been just like, hey, Jesus has changed my life through that group of people. He's doing something beautiful there. I would love for you to to jump in at Seven Mile Road. What is the number one primary answer that comes in that conversation? For me, anyway, this is it, at least 90% of the time. Oh, I don't do church. I'm done with church. I haven't been in church in a long time, and I'm not going back. And when you say, okay, tell me about that, you know, how come? Where do they go immediately? What comes next? It's a rant about false shepherds. It's a rant about bad pastors, pedophile priests, effeminate worship leaders, goofy, untrustworthy youth pastors. That's where the conversation goes. The perfect excuse for us to make ourselves the only spiritual authority in our lives, as if we're not going to then just go do the same thing and grab the glory for ourselves. So I, I find that a very weak answer, but I do have great empathy because it is awful to be sinned against in this way. I mean, this is terrible, but has anyone in here not suffered under the leadership of a spiritual authority that was grasping, and in their grasping for themselves, they did harm to you? Okay, that's real. We know. We feel it. But the answer is not to throw out Jesus' church. So we drive a minivan, right? Four kids, you have to do that in the United States. The door on the right side of this minivan will not work. Has anyone ever had that experience? You're supposed to push the button and like magic, it's supposed to go like this and then open and then all the kids can get in the car. This thing won't work. Grace has probably spent 50 hours at Honda Gallery trying to get this door worked. After like the third door, it comes home, it's working, right? You click it and it goes, no, not today. What's our immediate response in that moment? I hate this minivan. This minivan is garbage. Let's get rid of this thing. We're selling it. How do I do this on Craigslist? Is that a wise solution? It's actually a great minivan. It's only got 80,000 miles. Now's when you start to have the real financial benefit because you have years without a payment. It's just got a bad door. The answer is not to get rid of the minivan. The answer is to 
And we've got to find some way to deal with this door. That's the same thing here. The answer is not, can we just shut this place down because this is what happens with spiritual leaders. Let's do something different together. What if our church and the leaders in our church and every other seven-mile road that we're connected to and our whole network of churches, what if we so feared God and we so loved His glory, loved His glory, that at the gut level, I mean the instinct level, we were just agreed. There will be no spiritual rock stars in the life of this church. Nobody will be grabbing at the perks that will come if God was to bless us. What if that was in here? Core conviction. Every single one of us. When presented with the opportunity to take the glory from God and then go, hey, if I've already taken the glory, I might as well take the money and the sex and whatever else I can get from these people. Instead of that, this was our heart right here. It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not my church. Every pastor has to preach that to himself. No, it's not. These are not my children. Every father and mother, spiritual authority in that home, needs to preach that to yourself. These are not little show-offs for how awesome I am. They have been given to me from God. They're not mine. I don't get dishonorable benefit from this deal. What if that was us? The text that we're looking at today, the story that Patty read, one of the reasons the Spirit gave it to us was to teach you what it looks like for this to be gut-level, gut-level instinct. All right, let's work those words together quickly. Patty read to us that Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Lystra preaching Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit, a miracle was worked. As you read through the book of Acts, the apostolic age, in a unique way, Jesus was attesting to the veracity of the message of the gospel with miraculous signs and wonders so that there would be no doubt about it. Jesus is really risen. This gospel is really true. And so there's miracles like this attending the preaching of the word. Luke is also doing something else rhetorical. He's establishing the apostleship of Paul. So earlier in Acts, we saw Peter do a miracle just like this. And now Paul is doing a miracle just like this. What's his rhetorical point? Peter is an apostle. So is Paul. Both of them are anointed by God as capital A, Apostles. So our story begins with gospel advance, ministry success, divine blessing. You feel it? God has blessed the work of his early church. And what follows immediately in our story when there is ministry success? What follows right away? There's an opportunity to steal the glory. Verse 11 said this. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Okay, so we're dealing with Roman Empire Greeks in this text. These are polytheists, many, many gods, many, many superstitions, many, many what I call rock star gods and goddesses, right? You may have learned about the pantheon of Greek gods in fifth grade. Maybe you just read too many Percy Jackson novels like in our house, so you know all their names and you know all their special callings. This culture robbed glory from God and assigned it to demigods and little gods. Each of them had some particular task in overseeing the well-being of their people. With Poseidon, it was the water. With Ares, it was war. With Florida Georgia Line, it was terrible music. Have you seen that God in the Greek pantheon? That's this scene. Many gods, many gods. As soon as they see this miracle worked, what do they rush to do right away? Give praise and adoration and worship and glory to Paul and Barnabas because obviously they are gods who have come down to be among us. They call Barnabas Zeus. He might have had a beard like my dad. I'm not sure, but he was definitely the older of the two. And they called Paul Hermes. Why? Hermes was the messenger of the gods. You know, FTD Florist, the guy with the wings on his ears and on his heels. He brought the news. He brought the good news. Paul was the talker. So they said, he's Hermes. And then we saw this. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Okay, does everybody feel this? It is always the response of the unregenerate heart, always the immediate response. We're never content with the invisible God. We're never content with His ministry done through words. We want rock stars. We want gods who are a little bit more like us than some invisible, sovereign, almighty God. And so we will move toward somebody down here in worship. That's what the unregenerate hearts do. For them, it was gods and goddesses. But don't you dare shake your head at this text and be like, stupid, pagan, ancient morons. No, you don't get to say that. Roman Catholics do the same thing, right? If you've got a hopeless cause, who do you go to? Jude, who is a holy guy, but he's no God and he doesn't answer prayer. If you lost your keys, who do you go to? Anthony. If you don't want to get in an accident, who do you put up on your dashboard? All right. See, we've got our gods. And then if you're Protestant and you want to laugh at Roman Catholics about that, you don't get to do that because we've got our evangelical gods and goddesses, right? Don't make me take your phone right now and pull up your podcast. For theology, you got Mike Horton. If you need some good preaching, you got Matt Chandler or Jay Thomas. Want to get your groove on in your car? You got your Hillsong, Hillsong superstars. And if you're not a Christian at all, don't make fun of the religious people because you have your gods and goddesses. This scene is a cart with an ox and garland. 
What do we do every time our teams win the Super Bowl? We go right down Boylston Street. It's just duck boats and confetti. It's the same thing, adoration and praise. Why do we have the ESPY Awards? Why do we have the Country Music Awards? Why does Fast Company exist? I subscribed to that because I thought it would be helpful with organizational leadership. It is nothing but the worship of the business gods. Nobody is exempt from this scene right here. Don't mock the ancients for having this worship parade. You do it too. We do it too. All of us respond this way. We move from appreciation to adoration to worship. Who has a ton to gain right now in this story? Who are the two people who have the most to gain at this point in the story? It's Paul and it's Barnabas. Straight up, they could own this town. Am I right? Lystra could be theirs. All of the fat, all of the wool, all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the money, all of the sex, all of the perks, it is sitting there ready for Paul and Barnabas. Can everyone feel the danger? Anytime God blesses the work of a church or a ministry, people will want to make rock stars the ministers, and the ministers will want to be made rock stars of, can you hear the unholy collision that is about to come? Okay, what do they do? Do they take it in like Herod a few chapters earlier? Yes. Do they go 50-50 with Jesus? Do they start the interview with, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ but then finish with, you saw that miracle, right? I've been working on that one. See, I knew he was the guy. I got this thing where when I'm preaching, I can just, it's her over there. Yeah, I knew, I knew he was the one. If we would like, I can do a seminar on how to discern the work of the Spirit while you're teaching. Is that what they do? Just kind of 50, 50 praise to Jesus and also some grabbing? Come on, please don't miss this, please. How do they respond when the door is open for them to receive more than is rightfully theirs through the work that God had called them to? It's beautiful. Here it is, words of Scripture. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also just men of like nature with you. Does everybody in here feel this? At the gut level, immediate instinct, they understood the danger that we're talking about. Immediately, no hesitation, no delay, they recoil from rock stardom, and the perks that could come their way. The tearing of their robes 
was a sign that blasphemy was about to be committed and they wanted no part of it. Paul throws himself in front of the cart. This has to stop. You can see Barnabas like leaning in to just tip that thing over just to end this. Does everyone see this verb in here? Do you see it? Crying out. Okay, I'm not going to scream because that gets uncomfortable with 60 of us. They are screaming, no, no, not like a put up a little fight. Oh, no, don't do that. I mean, go ahead, but, but no, don't, but go ahead. Scream, making fools of themselves in the street before they would take glory from Jesus. This is not our power. This is not our work. This is not our healing. This is not our glory. It's not mine. It's not mine to take. It's not mine. And then where do they lead the people? It's the same place that all of us are supposed to lead people. They lead them to God. There's no Jesus in this text because when preaching to these Gentiles, they had to first establish the, the almighty sovereignty of the invisible one God. And so here's what they say. We're just bringing you gospel. We're just, we're just bringing you news that you should, that you get to turn from these vain things to the living God the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Is there a pastor in the United States of America who would say that in that moment? Turn people away from this mentality that would bring them perks and benefits. Turn off the valve of personal gain. Turn people 100% fully to God and God alone. That is your solution to this danger. Okay, what about us? Let's use this text this morning to make this commitment together. There will be no spiritual rock stars in the life of Seven Mile Road. It will not happen. I don't mean that we won't honor and appreciate and respect and compensate our leaders in a holy way. And I know nobody in here hears me saying that. That's a, a different sermon that I could preach. I mean that nobody in here will participate in a culture that takes from God what belongs to him. This is his vineyard. You are his fruit. The work that the Lord does through you, it's his fruit. We are going to give it to him. We're going to give it to him. If you're here today and you're fixated on human rock stars and gods and goddesses, whatever that looks like, whatever your background, if your heart races to, I just kind of prefer like my gods to be like me. And I want, I want to give glory to saints or pastors, or my parents, or whoever it is. There is no joy in that place for you. 
They are sinners. Your pastor is a sinner, a bad one. Your mother and father, sinners. Jude and Christopher and Anthony, brothers, rejoice with them in heaven. But they're not gods. They're sinners. Like Paul said, they're just human flesh like everybody else. Behind anything that a spiritual leader ever does for your good is an infinitely bigger and more beautiful and stronger, gracious God who is working through that person. Turn from that person upwards to God. Repent, repent if that is you. And if you are here today and you have been given spiritual authority, if you are here and you are headed for a place where you will have spiritual authority and you know that there's this thing in you that wants to turn that this way, that wants some of that glory for yourself and some of those perks to come this way. Man, don't go there. Your job, your joy is leading people humbly, selflessly, anonymously, leading them to God in Christ. All right, let's pray for that together. Father, I long for your blessing on this church. I mean, I, I ask you for it. I don't have to beg you, my Father, but I ask you for it. I want to see healing in the life of this church. I want to see salvation. I want to see a couple of hundred kids who grow up fiercely loyal to Jesus, filled with love for their neighbors, holy in the work of their hands. I want to see a team of spiritual leaders serving, arms locked together. But I don't want to see anybody taking what belongs to you. This is your church. This is your vineyard. This is your work. This is your money. This is your space. This is all for your glory. I pray that we would turn from that idiocy and foolishness and sinfulness. I pray that you'd forgive our country for our worship of the gods and the goddesses of our day across every tradition. Would you forgive us? Would you turn our eyes toward heaven, toward the Christ who's seated above this fray? Would you move us to give you the fruit and to give you the glory? There's so much joy to be had there. So forgive us, heal us, help us, and lead us. This is our prayer. I pray that you would answer. Amen.